Good evening. This is the Tomorrow Christian Today, reading John 6 in the NLT. But first and always, you know the drill. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your kindness. I thank you for mercy. I thank you for a second wind with the podcast, also with training as well. Uh, knowledge is also great to really think, to understand. We must work it out, Lord. Work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we work it out with you, with the Holy Spirit. Yet we recognize that other people have different perspectives, different way of looking at things. Help us to be multi-faceted, um, uh, Lord, um, being able to see multiple points of view, even if we're biased towards one. Help us to respect each other because you need respect in order to have love. And we thank you for all that you are doing. So bless me now as I read your word and bless those who want to listen and to consider the matter. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I go, I heard a guy talking about, you know, we have all this head knowledge. He was a Christian. But what about heart knowledge? And I think it was a guy on Right Now Media. He says, we've got all this head knowledge, but we don't have heart knowledge. And he was talking about fear, fearing God, Luke 12, 51. I think it's what he said. And he said, you know, people just like fearing God. It means fearing God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And there's this Christianity that people are just kind of, you know, uh, he, he said that if a person went to church and came out of the church, they'd come away with the commandment of thou shalt not fear God. I mean, loving God, yes, but fearing him as well because he's perfect and he's the manager. And, you know, I had a conversation with someone today, again, about the rapture. Like, there's this, you know, I'm always the one saying to hear different points of view. I always say I didn't grow up with the rapture. It doesn't really make sense to me. I don't really see John Darby's interpretation of Harpazio from 1 Thessalonians 4, where you're snatched away to be some kind of secretive pro-second coming happening. And then all the bad people or the bad Christians are left here to sort of duke it out with the devil. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes back and everybody gets reunited. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I listen to people and I try to always say, okay, you can disagree agreeably, and I do out loud. But when I hear people and they're so convinced, they are so convinced in their mind that this is the way it's going to happen and it can't happen any other way. Like, there are parts of the Bible that are just concrete. You believe it or you don't. Okay? You believe it or you don't. Although somebody could say the whole Bible is faith and there are many ways to interpret things. Right? Some people can say, okay, Jesus, it wasn't a virgin birth. Mary was a young woman. You know, she did have some kind of, um, you know, other husband or other husband or whatever for Jesus. But uh, it doesn't really matter as long as Jesus never sinned. Like, I, I don't really go there. Like, to me, it's like the Holy Ghost came upon her. She had never been with a man. And Jesus is coming. Part of him is coming straight from the Spirit of God. Like, I can't see it any other way. God, I can't see. But there are other parts of the Bible that are like in Revelation. I'm talking about today, Revelation 7. People come out of the tribulation. And there's this rapture thing where, okay, the tribulation was like when the rapture happens, people are coming off this earth and they're going up to heaven and they're coming out of the tribulation of the earth. No, no, sorry. I'm sorry. The tribulation is what's about to happen. So all the Christians get raptured and then the tribulation occurs, the seven-year tribulation. And those people are the ones that are in, in the second group of Revelation 7. I think it's verse 9, right? Revelation 7 verse, it starts with verse 9. And I'm thinking that the tribulation is just anybody that came, like any Christian from any time has just come out of the earth. 
So to me, there is no rapture. Revelation 1 verse 7, Revelation 19, 11 to 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, to me is the same event. And I say that this is my hermeneutic. This is makes sense to me. John Darby's interpretation doesn't. His interpretation um, creates more confusion than it solves problems. And the reason I said so is because somebody was reading Revelation 7, and then they're listening to another person who was talking about the rapture uh, in that convinced way, and then they're getting confused. Anytime people read the Bible, and all of a sudden somebody says, no, I don't get this, I don't really understand. You, 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 can, <clears throat> you can know that, and the person who says, I don't understand, is a true bona fide Christian. I know she's a true Christian. I've known this woman for 25 years. And she's not seeing this rapture thing, but you know, she's not able to put it into words like big mouth me. Like I can't understand why people are so hell bent on one perspective. You know, God is the elephant in the room. I can, I see the back end of the elephant. You see the head of the elephant. I say to you, there's a back end. You say, no, there's a front end. Like those, those blind men in that story. And I tell you that I can't see your perspective. But I have to sort of, I can't see your perspective because your perspective sounds very convoluted to me. And you say the same thing to me, but it doesn't seem like you're convinced that I'm telling you that there's a different perspective. Like this rapture thing is just entrenched in, in Christian um, mythology or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it. Like, I just don't get this. I did not ever hear this. John Darby was a Christian. He lived along in the 1800s. I think he he has his own Bible. He has a Bible. I don't think he was like a cult guy. I think he was a good Christian man. And he read the Bible and he saw things um, in a certain perspective. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just find it funny when certain perspectives just sort of gain all this traction. You know, this is where I came from. Like, you know, this 1844 thing. And Saturday's the Sabbath, and we all have to go to church on Saturday. And if you don't go to church on Saturday, uh, you're not getting God's blessings, and it has to be Saturday. And that's just the way it is, and it can't be any other way. Whenever you meet people like this, it can't be any other way. Like, I, I would say that about what I'm saying, but I would say, okay, it might be another way. I might be wrong, although I think my way... Um, you know, is the simplest way possible. But when you meet people who are so, like you just sense that it can't be any other way other than the way they see it, you kind of get that feeling of like yellow alert kind of thing. Anyways, I babbled long enough. Jesus feeds 5,000. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed the hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Actually, I think this is Lent, so I did not grow up. I heard about Lent, but I thought it was like a Catholic thing. But Lent is like 40 days before the Passover. I don't know where that came from. I didn't, did I read the word Lent in the Bible? I didn't read it. So it's a good time to reflect upon what God has given you. Maybe that's why it's called Lent, L-E-N-T. Like God has lent us everything. I don't know. I was, I was thinking that in my head, reading a plan in the Version Bible. And then that 40 days, and I think this year it ends at March. When would it end? So it ends on, let me just look at, I, I forgot the date. It started already, but it ends on Wednesday, March 27. I always get these dates mixed up, I think.
this year. So I thought, this is pretty cool. I like this. So I'm reading a Bible plan. So that's Lent is before the Passover, right? <coughs> Pardon me. Jesus is our Passover lamb. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's see, where, where did I go here? Okay. Lost my place there. Okay. Verse 5. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming back to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. So Jesus is testing to see their faith. I guess he's always testing us too, right? Like I told the people today, I said, you know what? Irregardless of what we believe, we must, as Christians, disagree agreeably, right? Because we're all Christians. To me, the rapture thing is a small point. Kind of bugs me. I don't know why. But really, I should take my own advice. It's a really small point, And it's really not cr dividing Christian brothers. That's what the devil does. He tries to divide us against each other, even when our, with our own hermeneutics that we well-meaningly study. Right? So the devil kind of tests us, but he tries to divide us. Jesus tests us, but only to increase our faith. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's testing Philip not to break his faith, but to increase his faith. Like, okay, Philip, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to fix this? What is the Holy Spirit telling you to do? I'm thinking. So Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Okay, that's a very natural kind of reaction, right? Like, okay, the concrete world. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Five barley loaves and two fish. I wonder if that's supposed to be, like that's seven altogether, but five barley loaves. Okay, barley, fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterwards, he did the same with the fish. So all of a sudden, all this stuff starts popping out of nowhere. And they all ate as much as he want, as they wanted. Now, I believe totally this was a supernatural event. I believe that somehow Jesus multiplied them. God worked through Jesus. God is living in Jesus. God with us through Jesus. So God multiplied. So somehow more fish and bread was created. I believe that. Some people could say they're Christians, but I know like Barclay, he, he doesn't think that it was an actual supernatural event. What I remember reading, and I thought this was really kind of odd, is that everybody kind of sat down and then they started seeing other people. Other people secretly had their lunch, but they didn't want to share it. They didn't want to bring it out because they were afraid they'd have to share it with people who didn't bring their lunch. But when people who brought their lunch but were hiding it saw other people take their lunch out, um, then they decided to pull their lunch out. And that's Jesus created this spirit of sharing and, and warmth and common, common ground with everybody and helped everybody to relax. It sounds like a good theory. I just don't buy it. But William Barclay is a very intelligent man, has that commentary of the New Testament. So if that's what, you know, if that's how his brain interprets that, would I say he's a bad Christian? I wouldn't say that. I'd say he was a very devoted man based on the writings that I have been able to understand. Um, I, for some reason, I can understand William Barclay better than I can understand Oswald Chambers. Like Oswald Chambers is so up there, so out there. I can barely understand what he says, even though I think the man is a complete Christian genius, right? But anyway, so I believe it was a supernatural event. I don't know how you feel about it. Verse 12, after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. 
So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Was it 12, was it 12 baskets? Was it exactly 12 baskets? I would say yes. I mean, 12 is such a significant number, you know, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 gates of the New Testament. Like that seems kind of odd. Like somehow Jesus takes the concrete world, right, where things can't happen, and he multiplies it to create um, so much food left over that it fills up 12 baskets. Like there's, there's a lesson in that. And, you know, I, I think God is trying to show us that with God, scarcity turns into prosperity. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm sorry. I don't really buy that. But with God multiplies things, right? God creates things. God increases friendship, fellowship, connection. God makes us all sons and daughters of him. God brings, you know, Jesus brings sonship. He who the son release, makes free is free indeed. You know, we return from slaves, like the old covenant, rules, regulations, to sonship with God through Jesus Christ, relationship with God, integration with God, being made one with God, not equal to God, but one with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That, that's what I get out of all of this. Boy, I can really blab, can't I? Man, I, I, I sometimes I think I go off the rails way too easy. Don't uh, allow me to tell you a story succinctly because I never do. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets. Okay, verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign. So that to me, when, when I read that, to me, William Barclay's interpretation, although I really like him, and I think he was a very Christian man, I don't really buy what he's saying. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't wrote this, this miraculous sign if everybody secretly had their lunch but didn't want to pull it out because they were afraid the other guy would grab it. it doesn't make sense to me. But anyways, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. So they were looking at Jesus. He's a prophet. Were they thinking of him as the Messiah? Is that what it means? I don't really have the Greek in front of me. So maybe they were thinking of the Messiah, prophet. Were they thinking of Savior, Redeemer? Were they thinking of saving them from their sins? Not really. They just wanted liberation from the Romans. They were tired of... I don't know, the oppression, the tired of being tired, you know. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. My friend used to say, I'm tired, I'm retired. Really? I was tired yesterday and I'm tired today, I'm retired. You know, so people are just kind of tired. And even today, people are complaining about the government, the taxes, the this, the that, what everybody's doing to them. And, you know, they can't get a break. So everybody's kind of tired. So when you're tired, you kind of blame everybody else. I just saw one guy in a video and he says, you know what? It's not my personality. Whatever happens in life, if something bad happens to me I, or, or something that my performance is bad, I'm going to blame myself. He said, I'm not going to blame other people. I'm not going to blame women. I'm not going to blame the government. I'm not going to blame some other group. I'm going to blame myself. I'm going to take responsibility for myself. I liked his, I liked his attitude because there's a lot of people who have bad lives and they have this victim mentality. They're going to blame everybody else. They're going to blame somebody else that they failed. Well, that's what the devil does, right? He's blaming God that God's not following through, and that's why he's the devil. When Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So Jesus knows that they want to make him a king to go against the Romans, and that's not what he's here to do. I mean, he is going to do that in Revelation 19, verse 11. Jesus is going to be that angel of, you know, destruction that really terminates people who don't have the blood, who don't have him as their savior. It's going to happen in Revelation 19. 
that that is going to happen when he's going to liberate the world from the devil from oppression right but right but this in this case he's not here to do that he's here to liberate people from their sins when Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So the people don't really care about sin, and they don't, they're not thinking about spiritual things. They just want their bellies to be fed. They want to have a good life. They want to be able to pay their money. They want to be able to pay their taxes. They want to be decent, honest, hardworking people. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what Jesus came here to tell people. Verse 16, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him, but a darkness fell, and Jesus still hadn't come back. They got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. Oh, it's kind of like the world, right? Revelation 17 says that the, the sea and the waves are roaring. They represent the multitudes, the people. You know, everything is kind of roaring. Everybody's contentious. Everybody's butting heads and, and, and polarized and, and nonpartisan and all that sort of stuff. Politics, the relationships, spirituality, everything is very, everything is very contentious, right? Everything is very, you know, people are very, very uh, galvanized towards one opinion or another, and they really can't change or compromise. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking in the water towards the boat. They were terrified. And, well, I would be too. But he called out to them, Do not be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. So, I think there's a lot of stuff that went on, right? They were, right? He said to them, I am afraid, but uh, he said, Don't be afraid. And maybe that's one of the things, you know, the Bible does say, the Bible is a reconciliation between God and man. And for us to retrust our Heavenly Father and to reconcile with him, we're always afraid. I'm always afraid, you know, what's, what is the devil going to do to me? Or is this God's will for my life? Or can I get out of this? And we're always going to be afraid. And Jesus challenges us and the Bible challenges us. God challenges us. You know, as Derek Prince said, if you've never been astounded, you've never read your Bible. If you've never been amazed, you've never read your Bible. If you've never been surprised, you've never read your Bible. I guess he meant you've never read the entire Bible. God is asking us to trust him. God is not falsifiable. Okay, God God doesn't want to be falsifiable. Falsifiable is where you prove something true or false with some kind of experiment like science. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be proved. He wants you to trust him. Right? He wants you to have faith and trust him. And you can't love someone you don't trust. It's definitely relational, not informational. Jesus the bread of life. The next day the crowd that stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. So Jesus is being chased after by everybody. You know, everybody wants a savior. Everybody's chasing after political people today in the USA or Canada or whatever. Hey, fix our world, fix our society, do this. You know, restore, restore our nation, make our nation great again. You know, everybody's chasing after somebody. You know, Jesus is saying all these wonderful things, and of course, you know, he know, you know, he means it. But they, they're also just thinking of, you know, Jesus is meeting our needs. We're gonna go chasing after him. So I think it was very hard. I do think that everybody was chasing after Jesus. Everybody was chasing his his mother and brothers, the, these people, the apostles. Um, the Pharisees, um, other people, positively or negatively, like everybody wants a piece of this guy. I think that's a lot of pressure. 
He's not even 33 years old yet. I mean, this is a lot of pressure for a young man. Of course, he is, does have the Holy Spirit. But I think Jesus definitely prayed a lot, because, and I, and I think he cried a lot more than we might think. Not because he was weak, but because he was so strong and there's so much pressure on him. God said, this is my beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And look at all the things that happened to him. And the Bible says, those who would live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. People will either persecute you negatively or they'll be hunting after you, right? People can disrespect me. You know, I've, I've heard people say negative things to, to me about my faith. But when they have a crisis, you know who they come to, right? Can you pray for me? Like, oh, you, oh, you want me to pray now? What about that time you said that I need a crutch? But it's like, yeah, okay, I will. I will. You know, this guy's father just had a stroke, right? That I know. Oh, pray for, pray for him. Okay, I will. I will. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> well, he's walking across the water. He's supernatural, folks. God and man, right? Jesus is God and man together. As my pastor said, all oh, they were all standing around him, all his apostles saying, what are you? Even the sea and the waves obey you. What kind of person are you? What kind of man are you? You're a man, but yet you have these godlike powers. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. See how smart Jesus is? I mean, he knows people are after him for what they can get out of him, not what they can give. You know, that's what Kennedy said. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well said. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Okay, he's talking big now. Of course I believe him, right? So Jesus is sealed. We were talking about being sealed in Revelation 7 today. And right, Ephesians 4.30, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is asking you to believe. Because if you believe that God is working in Jesus, then Jesus' character, what he does, his actions, how he addresses situations in the world, Jesus wants you to, believe, to be that. Jesus wants you to be a Christian, to be like a little version of him. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors are ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, the Father has given me, those the Father has given me, given me will come to me and I will never reject them. I don't feel rejected by Jesus. I don't feel invisible by Jesus. I feel pretty good. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me the, not to do my own will. After this is... And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. That doesn't sound like something metaphorical. He's talking about some last day. I just read this in Acts 17.30. 
that God will judge the world in righteousness by that man he has appointed on the last day, Acts 17.30. I just read this. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say it came down from heaven? Like that bread, that manna is from God. Jesus is from God. Like we're all from God. We were all created, right? God said to Jeremiah, I saw you before you were born. But where was Jeremiah? Was he walking around in heaven? Well, he was in God's mind. He was in God's plan. So in a way, we've all come from God. But Jesus is saying something really much higher. Like he's really from God. Like, like he's 100% God. He's a man, but he's exactly, he thinks exactly like God. Him and God are totally one. How he thinks, how he acts, how he behaves, what he does. And he's perfectly sinless. He's never sinned. I believe that. I believe the text tells me that. I don't know what your hermeneutic is, what your belief is, what your interpretation is. That's my exegesis of what I read. I would never say that I have exegesis. To me, that's just, that's just, I don't know, disrespectful or rude to God. God knows what these words mean, right? They're, they're his words from, from men. God knows exactly the interpretation of the words. I do not. I am just asking for the Holy Spirit that my opinion can be as close to truth as possible. But I am not Jesus. I am not perfect. I am not sinless. So I will always say that my interpretations, although I think that they're very logical, are still eisegesis, not exegesis. Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. <laughs> my friend always sends me something from a GIF, G-I-F, from Arnold, uh, from one of Arnold's movies in The Kindergarten Cop. And Arnold says, stop whining. Jesus says, stop complaining. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. I believe that I'm going to see my mother on the last day. And I believe the last day is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I don't believe in, in the rapture. But, you know, I have to be respectful, right? That that 1 Thessalonians 4 is that last day. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the end, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there's something about the dead in Christ shall rise first. That to me is the last day. Ain't going to be no more human history after that day. It's done. Jesus is coming out of that sky in Revelation 1 verse 7. You're with him or you ain't. There's no, there's no fence. It's, it's binary. You're on one side or the other. You're a lamb or you're a goat. Let him who is filthy be filthy still, still, and let him who is holy be holy still. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Note, not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I who was sent from God have seen him. So Jesus is making huge claims. I believe his claim. And he is saying that him and the Father are one and that he's equal to the Father. He is sinless. Whatever the Father, uh, whatever the Father speaks, it, the words come out of his mouth. Okay, I'm speaking. I'm speaking based on what I think the Holy Spirit is saying to me. But, but I'm not like that. Nobody's like that. Billy Graham wasn't like that. Um, any other minister, true or false, if you want to say Joel Osteen, some of you like Joel Osteen, some of you probably hate Joel Osteen. Right? Whatever you can say about Joel or Bill or, or J.C. Ryle or Charles Spurgeon, okay, nobody can say it the way Jesus just did. He says, nobody has seen the Father but him. That's serious business. 
It says Moses, Moses, God said, I speak to Moses face to face. But Jesus says, nobody's ever seen God. Like I think in the sense of nobody's ever seen God is totally aligned to God like I am, not even Moses. That's what I think. That's my Isa Jesus. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. I believe, Lord. Yes, I am the bread of life. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the communion. I'm the wine, right? I'm the blood. I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'm the perfect sacrifice. I'm the one who has to repair the breach between you and God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that comes, came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I offer, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Communion is a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus. In the Baptist church and also the church I came from, you took communion, it was a symbol. In another church, it's called transubstantiation. I don't believe that. I think that's just really weird. I don't really like that. That, that to me is not kosher. <laughs> Excuse the pun, okay? Jesus is saying, that's why you take communion. We take communion the first Sunday of every month. It's the symbol of what Jesus' body was broken for us. He was sacrificed for us. The, the, the grape juice or the wine in the glass, we have grape juice, um, represents Jesus' blood. It's like we have a blood transfusion. We've been given a new heart and a blood transfusion and given a new body because the old body, the old man of sin was destroyed because Jesus is the one who represented the human race, the sins of the human race. It's been destroyed and we are part of the new covenant race, even though we are not yet um, given our immortal bodies, the new covenant bodies for the new universe where we will see God face to face. Anyways, I'll do a part two and continue where I left off. This chapter is very long. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience. Some of the things I say could be wrong and please excuse or please I apologize for anybody that may be uh, thrown off by what I say. Never meant to offend. My, my opinions are my own. I don't tell you what to think. I ask you to think about what I tell you. God bless you all.